Well, we have been this summer in these outdoor services looking at these eternal perennial questions that people have asked throughout history. And even though we're using the form of theological catechisms or Q&As, these are not simply religious questions, but human questions. And our question for today centers around hope. What is our only hope in life and in death? Now, we might not think of this question as an essential question because so much of our lives deal with the here and now and hope can often seem distant, whether in the near future or the distant future. Uh, the future is by definition uncertain and speculative. And while I love to talk about Christian hope and the end of the story, today I wanna to talk about hope in um, a more practical manner, hopefully. Um, in a more present manner. And to do so, I have to introduce another question. See, we are using the New City Catechisms, um, which poses the question around the word hope. But if you've been at CPC for a while, that language might sound familiar to you because we've often used the words of the Heidelberg Catechism from, um, from the Protestant Reformation. And in that question, it asks the same question, but a different way with a similar answer. And it says, what is my only comfort in life and death? So if the New City Catechism updated the language from comfort to hope, we have to ask why. And here's what I think they're getting at. Um, we tend to think of hope like a reward at the end of the race. The pie in the sky when you die. Maybe you've heard it that way. Once you get to the end, then you'll get what you've been after all along. But the New Testament and the Old Testament both talk about hope as a mark of living in the present world, as a dynamic reality um, that affects the way you live day by day in the present moment. The Apostle Paul, in, in another place in 1 Corinthians 13, puts it this way. He says that, that faith, hope, and love all mark the life of the Christian, but love is the only one that abides. Why? Because in, 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 on one day, our faith will become sight, and faith will be altered forever. And likewise, hope will be altered forever on the day when Jesus returns, and we are welcomed into his new creation. And so hope, then, as a verb, um, as an ideal, must be more than just the thing we're after. It must be something that actually helps get us there. Um, it's, it's like a home finance loan that looks into the appreciating value of the property in the future and grants resources to work on the house in the present. Now, I'm not a finance person, so you can tell me afterwards why that analogy breaks down. Um, but, but what we see in hope is that our hope, the, the future, actually bleeds into the present for the Christian. It's almost as if we're able to go into the future and borrow from the future security, stability, joy, peace, even comfort from this future kingdom and bring it back into our present lives, even in the midst of suffering. And I think in 2020, in today's world, we need both hope and comfort. So what is your comfort in life? What is your hope in life and in death? Again, these questions don't, may not sound like the types of philosophical questions that people sit in coffee shops or lecture halls debating 
uh, among um, students of philosophy. If hope sounds speculative, then, then comfort sounds sentimental, even less philosophical. You know, Christians of the, uh, or critics of the Christian faith have said as much, right? Do you remember Karl Marx? He said that religion is the opium of the masses. Maybe someone has said that to you, that your Christian faith, uh, or maybe you've thought this yourself, that Christian faith is just a crutch. It's just a fairy tale to get you through the hard parts of life. And of course, the implication there is that the secular person just walks through the suffering of life head on. Uh, but that's not true either, is it? Uh, we all have an opiate. We all look to something to comfort us in suffering. And we can look around society and we can see a plethora of opiates available to us. But that's beside the point. The point is that we don't often turn the critical eye upon our comfort and hope. And so this question proposes that. What is our comfort and our hope in life and death? Think about that for a minute. Even if you're a Christian, even if you know the answer to the catechism, think about this. This is an ancient question. I would actually argue that much of our conscious thoughts and perhaps most of our unconscious thoughts are actually devoted to that question. What is my comfort in life and death? In fact, this is the first question of existence. From life's first cry, we are all born into this world asking, who is going to comfort me? Who is going to care for my needs? Will I be all right? And it's because we rightly, we rightly perceive, even as infants, that this world is a dangerous place. Paul acknowledges this in our passage. If you look at verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul knows the threats. He knows our fears. He knows the things that keep us up at night. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that um, I don't see it as an opium of the masses because it's so honest. It's not bashful about the pain and rebellion and evil and suffering of this cursed world. On every page of the Bible, you see a raw honesty that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that this world is full of things that threaten us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, the list goes on. Maybe you're thinking, I could actually add a few more things to Paul's list. I know that I could. But the point is that the dangers are real. The dangers are real. And that there are threats in this world. Ways that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we come into this world crying out, um, as you can hear my children now, crying out, who will comfort me? We cry out for someone to feed, to shelter, to clothe us. And not just, not just the basics, but someone to soothe our pain. Someone to console. Someone to comfort and we ask the question, who will comfort me? What will my comfort be? Will I be okay? And I ask you now, what do you do in the face of danger? What do you do when times are stressful, when, you're, when things get difficult, when things don't go your way, when you're insecure, 
when you're overwhelmed, when you're anxious, that will indicate where you go for hope and comfort. Where do you take your worry and anxiety? Now, I think some people tend to ignore the threats and ignore the dangers and the pain. This is the optimistic view. Some say, um, it doesn't matter. All those things that are looming around me, it doesn't matter. Everything is going to be all right. And um, you can actually turn the words of Jesus to say something similar, um, but it's not quite the full story. You know, it wasn't... um, those are not the words of Jesus. That's the words of Bob Marley, right? Everything is going to be all right. Don't worry. Jesus, on the other hand, in the garden the night before his crucifixion was sweating drops of blood because he took seriously the evil and suffering and the threats of this world. See, when we, when we just ignore the threats, it becomes intellectual escapism, fantasy, and I think even as Christians, we're tempted into to falling into this, to say, everything's going to be all right, and so I don't have to worry about anything. But the worries tend to go into other places. They tend to spill out. And you know what helps us to ignore the pain and the threats of this world? You know what helps us to um, ignore COVID-19 and the threats associated with that and the losses associated with that? Four hours of TV every night, or four glasses of wine, or four glasses of Ben and Jerry's half-baked ice cream. Not that I would know, personally. Um, But notice that Paul does not say that you don't have to worry about famine. He doesn't say you don't have to worry about danger. You don't have to worry about the sword. You don't have to worry about losing your job or your wife or a global pandemic Verse 36 shows us that Christians were in fact dying day by day through persecution. And Paul was quoting Psalm 44, which tells us that they were innocent. They believed God. They were faithful to God. And yet they were being slaughtered and persecuted. Well, if some ignore the dangers, then others um, see the dangers of this world as something to overcome. They say, don't depend on anyone. Trust no one. You're the only person looking out for yourself. You've got to beg, borrow, and steal to get through this life so you can dodge famine, so you can avoid suffering, so you can rise up from dire circumstances. Anybody watching Hamilton? This, this is the message, right, of Alexander Hamilton. Um, he's young, scrappy, and hungry, just like his country. He overcame, and we love these stories. We love the stories of people overcoming great peril and thriving. And so we're tempted to believe that that's how we, too, deal with danger and suffering, is to avoid it, to rise up, to to make sure we have the right insurance or the right amount of retirement or the right um, spouse or the right school for our children or whatever it is, so that we can overcome the dangers of this world. But when things don't go your way and you're disappointed, then you begin to simply refuse to hope. And you realize that this is actually the pessimistic view. You say, you know, I'm not going to get my hopes up in this world because I want to protect myself from the pain of being let down. 
And again, I say, even if you're a Christian, don't glaze over this, but ask yourself, which of these am I more inclined to, the pessimism or the optimism? The ignoring, the putting my head in the sand, or the trying to fix the problem so that I can avoid the suffering. But the Christian view of hope is neither pessimistic nor simply optimistic. It's something else entirely because Paul tells us in this passage that the Christian view of hope and comfort is not based on circumstances. It's based on relationship. He's not saying that um, your worst dreams will never come true. So you don't have to worry about it. He's not saying try really hard to make sure that your worst dreams never come true. He's not saying don't get your hopes up because your worst dreams might come true. He says that even if your worst dreams come true, you have something greater than your circumstances. You have the love of Christ. And that might sound like a weird thing to consider when we're considering the question of hope. But Paul says that our hope is not in circumstances getting better in the future, but in this relationship of being loved by Christ. That's why you see it um, at the beginning of the passage, and you see it at the end of the passage, and all through. This is about the love of Christ. And so if this, if this question, though, of comfort is foreign to the philosophers, I would say that it's actually very familiar to the psychologists, those who study human behavior and the, and the mind and the feelings and the emotions. Um, you might remember the, the psychologist John Bowlby, who's considered by some the father of attachment parenting and the attachment theory. And, um, and those who were his students who followed after him, um, they carried out a number of experiments and research that showed from our earliest days, our brains are designed to look for someone to comfort us. In securely attached families, we learn that when we cry out for help, our parents come to our aid. In insecure families, we learn that no matter how much we cry, there's no one to help. We are on our, on our own. And that might sound like common sense, but before attachment theory, there were actually a lot of people, the prevailing uh, system of thought regarding parenting was that it was wrong to re respond to the cries of a child. And the thinking went like this, if you coddle the child, it'll never grow up. You'll create a lifelong infant. It will always need and depend on the mother and never become independent. In fact, you can actually look, look at how hospitals treated children 100 years ago. When they were sick, they would put them in a, a plastic box like they were dealing with uranium uh, so as not to, to touch or soothe the child or contaminate the child. But it was Bowlby's research that led to the discovery of what's called the dependency paradox. See, what he found is that the children who have the most secure attachments to their parents are actually the most free to explore, the most independent children and become the most independent adults. That, that they know that someone will be there for them to comfort and soothe them in their anxiety. That when their parent goes away, their parent always comes back and is there for them. And if you've been to a labor and delivery wing in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, you'll know that 
that the, the um, nurseries are no longer being used the way they used to be because it, the prevailing opinion now is that children need to form those attachments at an early age. We have John Bowlby to thank for that in part. Well, what am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is that Paul is showing us in this passage that we need a secure attachment. And in Christ, we have a secure attachment that we can be depended upon, that we can trust, that nothing can separate us from. And that attachment to God, that attachment to Christ actually allows us to have comfort even in the midst of peril and danger. Because God will always love you. For us to have comfort in this life, we need a secure attachment to something outside of ourselves. Look at what he says in verse 37. Shall persecution or famine or death itself separate us from the love of Christ? He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, there is a secure attachment waiting for us in Christ. Not just in the future, but in the present. And our temptation, though, is to look at our circumstances, to look at the danger, the peril, the sword, the nakedness, the famine, the COVID-19, whatever it happens to be, and say, God must have forsaken me. Everything is going wrong in my life, so God must not be with me. And yet Paul says, no, that's not it. In all these things, in the danger, in the peril, in the distress, in the famine, we are more than conquerors. Now, he doesn't say that God will save you from the danger, but that God will save you through the danger. And that's what gives us the comfort that we need. That's what gives us the hope that we need that at the same time allows us to take, um, take an honest look at the pain and suffering and lament the suffering that we experience in this world. It's because Christ entered into this world and became a curse. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he suffered on the cross in order to redeem his people and to build and to make a new creation. And he tells us that he is actually making all things new and that someday when he returns, he will bring us into this new creation where we will behold God face to face. And none of the peril and none of the distress and the things that keep us up now can separate us from being loved by God. Because he loves us even in those things. And the result for the life of the believer, believer is comfort, is hope, and even confidence. And that's why Paul ends this passage by saying, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what I've been saying all along, that our hope and our comfort comes from knowing God and knowing whose we are. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only comfort in life and death? It's that we belong to Jesus that we belong to God and we are loved by him and nothing can take that away. The whole story of the Bible tells us that God is a lover. 
And that's why these verses sound like, the only thing I can compare them to is wedding vows, right? In sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, in all circumstances, you belong to me. That's what Paul is saying, not death or life or height or depth, and nothing in all creation will separate you. This is a covenantal bond from the one who created us and redeemed us. And the whole Bible tells a story of that, that God is a lover who went to hell and back for his people, for his bride, and he will not leave or forsake her. And so our hope, though it be seem distant, the hope that keeps us going toward that destination is that every single day nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. And that gives us comfort. That gives us a secure attachment to God. And hopefully that calls us out into the world to offer not um, optimistic fantasies or um, problem solving, but true comfort to our neighbors, lasting eternal comfort to our neighbors. And uh, I want to end just with the lyrics of this song that we're about to sing. In Christ, alone, uh, in Christ alone sums up our comfort, our hope. It says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That is our hope, and that is our comfort. May we abide in Christ like branches on the vine until he returns or calls us home. Amen.